I love Advent series. Uh, there's just something exciting about Christmas for me that's never waned, even though I've gotten older. And um, so the Advent series just come back a lot to life for me every, every year. And this one is called The Christmas Carols. And we're looking at the original songs written around the birth of Christ, right? Well, I mean, we're singing Nat King Cole songs today. And, uh, but they, these are the songs of Mary and Zechariah and the angels and Simeon. And then you're going to hear a new song in the new year that you might never have connected before to an Advent series. And we're pretty excited about getting the opportunity to share them. But let's be real for a moment. And most of us are, are older here, at least in their you know, mid-20s and, and up. Have you gone through difficulty in life? I have. And when you go through difficulty in life, maybe it's a marriage that fell apart. Maybe it's a baby that you lost. Maybe it is a job that you, what was taken away from you. When you go through difficulty, sometimes you could get to the point where your heart can't even sing. That was true for me back in 1995. I would go to church every weekend. I wasn't in pastoral ministry anymore. I had been for three years, and I felt like the Lord had just forgotten me. And every single week at church, I couldn't get my heart to sing. I would just weep because of the difficulty that we were going through, my wife and our firstborn and myself. And it took months for, for the Lord to heal me from that. So if you've been through difficulty, you'll understand Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is not our text, but I want to tell you about Psalm 137 because Babylon, the most powerful country in the world at that time, conquered the southern portion of Israel, and took all of the best of the best, 700, 600 miles north and west, up to Babylon. And they were exiles, and they could not even sing, and their captors would torment them. Listen to what Psalm 137 says. By the waters of Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, Jerusalem, on the willows there, we hung up our lyre. Those were instruments of music. They could not even sing. Their lives were so extinguished from hope and joy that they could not even sing. Well, 2020 has been a difficult year for a lot of us. And now, more than ever, we need to sing songs to our Lord. This message and this series is intended to help you get song singing in your hearts again. And to help you do that, we're going to look at the original Christmas carol from Zechariah and learn to sing a song of hope and joy even in the midst of difficulty. The song was written, I hope you're in Luke chapter 1, let's all get in our Bibles. You need to be watching this with me, looking at this with me, I'm going to unpack a lot. Oh, and I've got maybe some distressing news for some of you. Alright, so the first half of this entire message is an introduction. Oh my goodness, that's going to be boring. 
I don't think it is. I think it's going to actually be very interesting. You could be the judge of that. But we're going to start the introduction. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Why does Luke tell us this? What does this have to do with anything? I'm going to tell you later about a website called songfacts.com. I actually go there fairly frequently because I like to know what was going on in the musician or the songwriter's life when they wrote the song that I'm, sing that I'm listening to. What do the lyrics even mean? So I go to this site to find that information. And what I'm going to do in this introduction that's going to be about 15 minutes long is give you the whole background for why Zechariah wrote the song that he wrote. What was he going through in life? Well, it was the days of Herod. Herod was a puppet king of Rome. Rome owned him. They allowed him to be the king of Israel as long as he would do everything that they wanted him to do. So the Jewish people utterly despised him. He was ruthless. He had three of his sons killed when his sons displeased him. It actually prompted, true story, Caesar Augustus to write, and I'm quoting, it is better to be Herod's hog than to be Herod's son. Even Caesar Augustus said that about Herod. Herod ordered his brother-in-law, the guy's name was Aristobulus, he was the high priest of Israel, he ordered Aristobulus to be drowned in a river, and he was his wife, Aristobulus's sister, Herod's wife, got angry about it. So what did Herod do? He had her killed. Now her mom, whose two children have been killed by this ruthless, despotic king, she got upset at him. He ordered her killed. I mean, the guy is despicable. He was dying from a disease. He, know, he knew nobody was going to mourn his death. There, were, death. there would be no grief. So he gave an order that upon his death, they would ring the shofar, they would blow the shofar and gather up all of the elite and the wealthy of Jerusalem and take them into the amphitheater and kill them. So that there would be crying and mourning throughout Israel, but nobody carried out the order, thankfully. But I will tell you, the most heinous, terrible act that he ever did, one that you've heard about, was when he heard that the king of the Jews was born in a little town called Bethlehem. So he ordered all of the baby boys, two years old and younger, to be killed, and that order was carried out. This was a terrible person. In the days of Herod, Luke is intending us to understand this is the dark days of Israel. These were not good days. But in Herod's reign, there was a priest, verse 5, named Zechariah. You know what the name Zechariah means? I'd write this in your Bibles if I were you. It means Yahweh has remembered. The Lord has remembered. Remember, if you've been through difficult times, I've seen it, I've heard it, I've experienced it, you begin to wonder, does God even know what I'm going through? And if he does know, does he care? 
Zechariah means the Lord has remembered. He is a priest. Well, it would help you to know that there's 20,000 priests in Israel during this time. And they're divided into 24 divisions. And each division would serve in the temple at Jerusalem two weeks a year that were non-consecutive. So one week might be in our calendar month, January. And another one would, might be in August. But they served two weeks a year. That was their joy, and they would serve in the temple. And you might be wondering, well, what does a priest actually do? I mean, I get asked all the time, what does a pastor do? You work one day a week. I mean, come on. Technically, it's two days a week, right? Because I preach Saturday night and then Sunday morning. Those of you who wonder that, I really don't like you. I do love you, though. Oh, okay, I, maybe not, but... I need to tell you that our, our pastors work pretty hard, but you know what? So didn't priests. You know what they did? They did all kinds of things. They worked in the temple. They worked all around Jerusalem. They worked in Israel. They would be janitors. They would keep the temple clean. They were soldiers. They were inspectors. If you brought a lamb to be sacrificed then they had to inspect it to make sure that there was no blemish, that it was worthy of being offered to the Lord. They were butchers. They did the sacrifices. They prayed for people. They visited people. All kinds of things priests would do. Well, here we go with Zechariah. He's a priest, one of 20,000. He's old. He and his wife Elizabeth are elderly. They have no children. They are righteous before the Lord, Luke says, meaning that they're faithful, they're godly, but they have no child. Now, I want you to know something about a barren woman. It's bad now. It's painful now. It's a pain that doesn't go away, but it was even worse in biblical times. I'll tell you why. It was actually viewed that a woman that could have no children was cursed by God, that she had done something so bad that God closed up her womb, and it carried a stigma with everybody in your village or your town or your city. In fact, the rabbis had a little saying, and it went like this, a Jew who has no wife or a Jew who has a wife who has no child is not welcome in God's presence. That's what the Jewish pastors, the rabbis, would teach in fact, barrenness, the inability to have a child, was legal grounds in a Jewish court for a divorce. So we've got all of this difficulty, and the days of Herod is bad enough, but now we've got elderly Zechariah, elderly wife Elizabeth. They could not have a child. He's a country priest. They live in a little town outside of Jerusalem in the hills of Judea, and they served, the God, they served God faithfully. But God would remember Zechariah. Look at verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So you've got the temple precincts, court of the Gentiles, court of the women, court of Israel, court of priests. And then in the inside of the court of priests is this house, this tabernacle, the temple itself. And it's divided into two rooms. You've got the holy place, and then there's a really big curtain that God ripped 
from top to bottom on the death of Christ, and inside that curtain, beyond that curtain, is the most holy place. You've got the holy place and the most holy place, and only one priest, the high priest, once a year, the Day of Atonement, could ever go into the most holy place. But every day, one of the priests on duty was selected by lot to go into the holy place and burn incense on the altar of incense. And it's what a priest lived for. This was a highlight, literally, of their entire life because it can only happen one time in your life. You never could do it twice. And it's whoever the lot fell on, and elderly Zechariah finally is chosen to take the incense into the holy place and burn it. Incense was harvested from trees, frankincense and Botswellian trees, they would stripe them and the sap would, would come down and they would put it on boards and dry it into the sun until it crystallized. And then they would pulverize it or keep it in small chunks and you put it over live coals and it immediately plumes in aromatic smoke. And that smoke represents the prayers of the people of God that rise to his nostrils, metaphorically, as a pleasing aroma of their faithfulness. And Zechariah takes live coals from the altar that they were burning sacrifices morning and evening, and he takes those coals and he takes them into the holy place, and there in front of him is the curtain, to his left is the table of showbread. To his right is the golden candlestick. And straight ahead is the altar of incense. He takes that bucket of live coals, pours it, dumps it into the altar, and then takes the incense and begins to sprinkle it over those live coals and incense plumes and rises upward. Normally, when finished the priest would turn around and exit the holy place and all the worshipers would be lined up at the rail that separates the court of Israel from the court of priests and they would be praying and the priest would come out that just, altered, that just offered the incense. He would spread his fingers. That's not new, by the way, with Leonard Nimoy from Star Trek. He was Jewish. He got this from a rabbinical priest's blessing. This is what they do. The fingers form Hebrew letters and he would hold them up and he would pray a prayer of blessing over all of those worshipers that's normally what the priest would do but not on this day look what happens in verse 11 there appeared to Zechariah in the holy place an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense now quick time out the right side was always the side of blessing and favor and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. He was terrified. He's terrified. They hadn't seen an angel in over 400 years. God had been silent up to this point. And the angel, whose name was Gabriel, knew he was terrified, and he said to him, Do not be afraid, for your prayer, verse 13, has been heard. What was his prayer? Lord, give us a baby. He's still praying it. And they're elderly. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
you would think that his terror turns to joy and exaltation. That's not what happened. His terror turned to disbelief. And the angel confronts him in verse 21. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words. But sovereign God, they will be fulfilled in their time. He's mute. If you go later on in the story when he has to write things out or they have to write things out as friends, he's deaf as well. So he's not only mute, he's deaf. He cannot speak, he cannot hear. Why? Because he did not believe. But nine months go by and the birth of John occurs. And they name him John, which means Yahweh, the Lord, has shown his mercy. And in the moment that they named the child, eight days after he was born, that's unusual, that's the day that you circumcise a Jewish boy, but the day that they named him, God healed him. And Zechariah now can hear and he can speak, and the Spirit of God, it says, filled him. And when the Spirit of God fills you, he always gives you the power to witness of him. And Zechariah does this in the form of a song. And Mary's song that we already looked at last week, that's called the Magnificat, this one in Latin is called the Benedictus. Why? Look at your psalm. Look at your song. The very first word is blessed. Benedictus. That's what Benedictus means. You know what blessed is? In the Greek, it's the word eulogy. It's what you hear every funeral when somebody, the officiant or a family member or the pastor, speaks well of the deceased. That's what it means to bless. It means to speak well here of God. And what follows in this song, we're going to put into three sections. Now, that was your introduction. I told you it was going to be half the message. I warned you because I'm so merciful as a pastor. But now we get to look at the meat of it. I'm going to go pretty quickly. It's going to be three sections, and here's the first. God has a plan for us. Now, I want you to remember this because I'm telling you, you will go through difficulty. doesn't matter if you're older or younger. You're going to go through seasons where life crushes you. And these three sections of the Song of Zechariah apply to you. God has a plan for us. We've got nine months that Zechariah could not speak. He could not hear, verse 62. They had a sign out and on boards what they were trying to say to him. But God restores his speech. He restores his hearing. And now Zechariah pens the most wonderful gospel-centered song. And we're going to follow that song in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. You want to know the favorite word in the entire Bible that I love? Redeemed. When I discovered the world of theology and the word of redeemed, it blew my mind. It was commonly, popularly used in two different contexts, the word redeemed. One, for captured soldiers in a war. By the way, it wasn't, the job, it wasn't your goal to wipe out all of the soldiers of the enemy army. I know that's what Hollywood likes us to think. That's not really what the goal was. The goal was to capture them alive as many as you could because war was a cash cow. 
If you can capture that enemy, even if he's wounded but he's going to live, then you can write a note to his family and say, listen, if you want this person back, then you've got to send me a ransom. And when you send me a ransom, you will buy back his freedom. That's what redeemed means. It means to buy back freedom. It was also used for slaves. And when a slave had a wealthy benefactor that took mercy on him and gave him enough money for his emancipation, he could buy himself out of slavery with a ransom price that was paid. In Israel, it worked this way. If you were a slave in Israel, it was almost always because your crops didn't grow, you had no money for your family, so you sold yourself into slavery to a wealthier person, and until you worked off your debt, then you were a slave to that person. Once you worked off your debt, you paid the ransom, you were free. You see, slavery in Israel, regardless of what you've been taught in American slavery, slavery in Israel was constructed to be a mercy. So redemption is all about buying you back, buying you out of slavery, buying you out of captivity and setting you free. But in the American mindset, it was certainly mine when I was 18 years old. I turned 18, I'm free. I don't have to listen to my parents anymore. That's what I thought. That wasn't reality. Right? So when Americans think of freedom, they think you can do now whatever you want. You don't need to obey anybody. That's not biblical freedom. When God buys you out of the slavery that I'm going to tell you about in a minute, you are now his slave. You are now his bond slave. The difference is now you want to serve your master. Now you have a master worth serving. Now you've got a master that is benevolent and kind and loves you more than anybody in the world, and your heart engages in that and responds with a desire. I wouldn't want to serve anybody more than my master Jesus. But why do we need redemption? It's because of this. Every single human being is born into slavery. This is the great theology of Psalm 51 that David says, I was a sinner even in my mother's womb. You were born into captivity, and you've got three masters, all of which are extinguishing hope and joy and life in you. And your three masters are the devil, who is the prince of the power of the air, this world system wants to crush you into its likeness, and your own flesh, that part of you that doesn't want yet what God wants. It doesn't want to obey God. It wants to defy God. You've got flesh. I've got flesh. The gospel's killing it. But we're born into captivity. We need to be redeemed. How are we going to be saved, verse 71, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us? Well, I'll tell you how you're going to be saved. It's Mark 10, 49, where Jesus says, I did not come to be served, I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. The ransom price is Jesus. It's his death and his resurrection that God freely gave by sending his son into the world that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And the ransom is paid through Jesus. And now when you put your faith in him, he redeems you. He buys you, he buys you back. He sets you free from the devil. He sets you free 
free from your flesh. He sets you free from the world. He puts you into his kingdom. He's your new master, and he puts in your heart a desire to serve him, a desire that why would you want to serve anybody more than Jesus? This is the power of the word redemption. And this is why Zechariah's song begins so powerfully in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord. Let's speak well of the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited, that's Jesus, and redeemed his people. He's bought them back. But how is he going to do it? Well, God not only has a plan for us, God has a person for us. You see, who would God choose to do the rescuing? God's rescue plan was to send his son, Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection would pay the ransom price. He would buy us back. He would free us, giving us true freedom to live and to love and to be loved by God and not forced to serve him, but to delight in serving our maker and redeemer. And this person, this Jesus, look what he says, Zechariah, in verse 69. He's the horn of salvation for us and the house of his servant, David. Now, you might be saying, like I did before I studied this. What on earth does that mean? You might be saying in your mind right now, see, Pastor Tim, this is why I don't like reading the Bible. It uses all of these arcane and old historic words that I cannot understand. Well, let's bring out the meaning. The horn is in reference to an animal's horn, like an ox or a bull or a ram. And when an animal became aggressive or powerful, he would toss his head. And the horns would frighten either a human or another animal. The horn of a person in the Bible, the horn of salvation, is all about the power of Christ to defeat the devil, your flesh, and the world. It is powerful. And he is in the house of his servant David. He descended through the line of David. And all throughout the Bible, a horn represents a person. And here it represents a person of Jesus, who is, verse 78, the sunrise, who shall visit us from on high. He's the one in verse 68 that's visited and redeemed his people. He's the one in verse 74 that delivered us from the hand of our enemies, that we might serve him without fear. It is the one in verse 79 that gave light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This song is all about Jesus. Well, that's not technically true. It's mostly about Jesus until point number three, my final point. God not only gave us a plan, he gave us a person, and he's also given us a purpose. God has a purpose for us. See, all the rage right now, and I saw him last night after church as I had a, um, a young lady in our church. Uh, her and her husband were there last night, and she came up, and she showed me pictures that they just got taken and pictures of the ultrasound of the baby that's inside of her belly. And I mean, that's all the rage, right, of not only pictures in the womb, but, you know, you dress up your little baby or you don't dress up your baby and you put him in a beautiful backdrop and you send these pictures out to everybody. It's because moms and dads are so proud. They love that little one so much. Do you think Zechariah was any different? Do you think this father is going to sing a song and not sing about his own child? 
Look what he sings about his own little baby boy, verse 76. And you, child, he's talking about his own child, John, who's going to be given the moniker John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. You see, John, that baby, was not the Messiah. He's not the anointed one. He's not the ransom to redeem sinners. He's the forerunner. He's the herald. He's got a job. He's got a purpose. He's got a mission in life. His mission is to announce the advent. What on earth does advent mean? We talk about it every Christmas. Advent means the arrival or the coming of the King of Kings. So we're celebrating right now today, not that Jesus is coming for the first time. We're celebrating that he's going to be coming back in addition to the fact that he already came. This is a two-level advent that we celebrate today. John the Baptist was telling everybody about the advent, the arrival of the king of, of kings. And he's preparing the way for him. Now here's the interesting thing. This was not something new that Zechariah made. He didn't just pull out of his hat I think I'm just going to give him a job title of the advent or the, the, the forerunner, the herald. That was already in vogue. That was already in use. Every king had forerunners. Every king had heralds. And they had a job in life. Their job was to go before the king. Whenever the king was going to go on a journey, whenever a king was going to go visit somewhere in his realm, the forerunner would go out one month before the king did and take a team with him and their job was to make sure the roads are passable make sure there's no dangerous animals that are going to be a threat to his king they go into every single city and every single village and every single town on the way of the king's journey and tell them your king is coming make right and be ready that was what john's job was and he did it in a remarkably singularly focused way he preached and he baptized and he preached the same exact sermon every single time some of you might complain about the sermons at this church listen he preached one sermon he had one sermon in his file and it went like this repent for the kingdom of god is at hand and if you don't repent you're going to be on the outside looking in and the only way in is through repentance and belief in the king that was a sermon. And he would kind of doctor it up. He was pretty creative. Sometimes he would use illustrations of there's an axe and I'm going to lay it at the foot of the tree. Well, this is what you do if you're an axe man because you don't want to swing and miss. So you measure it out before you take your first swing. God's measuring out. And if you don't repent now, you're going to be cut down. And John preached this message. And people by the thousands repented. The king is coming. He's establishing his kingdom. And if you want to be part of it, you have to repent. Now, you and I don't wear skins of a camel. And while we eat honey, we don't eat locusts. But we preach the same message and we have the same purpose. The king is coming again. 
And our job, every one of us, if you're a Christian, if you've been bought back, you're the redeemed, you've been the recipient of the ransom price of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, your job, my job, is to tell everybody you can that the king is coming. Be ready. How do you get ready? You repent and you move towards Jesus in faith. And this is exactly what we've been looking at in our To the End of the Earth series. But you receive power, Jesus says, when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. See, there's a plan. The plan is to redeem those caught up in the enemy of the devil, the world, and your flesh. And there's a person in the name of Jesus who will be the ransom that can buy you back out of slavery, back out of captivity, and set you free to serve without fear the most benevolent master you could ever imagine. But there's a purpose. And friends, you've got the same purpose as I do. And that is to be the herald and the forerunner of the returning king of the kingdom. And tell everyone Make yourself ready for the king is coming. May it be said of you and may it be said of me in the style of verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, in the days of 2020, there was a Christian named, and put your own name in it, who was righteous and served God faithfully. Why? Because he's got a plan. He's got a person. And we have a purpose. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this song of Zechariah. It is brilliantly written. It is prophetic. It is powerful. It is beautiful. Lord, it has the power to take any of us who are in difficult, dark days and to remind us that you have a plan for our lives. And that plan always involves freedom. And you have a person that will make that plan a reality. And that person is always Jesus. And you have a purpose for each of our lives. And that purpose is always to witness of the king and the coming kingdom. May this Christmas, this song be rooted deeply in our hearts. And may we sing it and declare without fear, our king has come and he will be coming again. Make yourself ready and repent. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here that has not yet repented, they're on the outside looking in. But Lord, they can be on the inside. They could be in the family of God. They could be saved. For you have a plan, you have a person, and you have a purpose. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.